and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering after house, house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of God. And let's bow in prayer once more. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we understand our inability to understand it without your help. We ask that you open these things to us, and then that you give us what's necessary to change as a result, that we would be more like you, less like ourselves. Bless our time together under your word. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one thing I want to make note of, this might help uh, give us a, a, a sense of flow as far as the study this morning. If you look back in your Bible to verse number 1, but almost down, actually the second line, you'll notice the first sentence might be on its own line. That is because those who translated the Bibles and gave it chapter breaks and verses didn't know if that fit better with chapter 7 at the end or the beginning of verse 8, Saul approving of his execution. But the words, and there arose on that day great persecution. If you'd like to mark your Bibles, underline or circle those two words, great persecution. But then go all the way down to the last verse, the next paragraph... So there was much joy in that city. I think we can call that an opposite. So what we'll do is try to figure out how do you get from great persecution, which is a bad thing, to the next paragraph, much joy, which is a good thing. Or how do you have one with the other, not one without the other? One doesn't end, the persecution gets worse. How do you have joy in the middle of the persecution? That'd be a good way to look at this, and I think uh, a good way to go about studying the passage. All right, the first three verses here paint quite a grim picture. Uh, you've got Saul approving of Stephen's execution. We studied that for three weeks. Then there arose on that day a great persecution. So a persecution is kicked off by an execution. Those two seem to be tied together. And all are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. How many of you would think that that follows nicely? That if people are trying to kill you, you try to get away from those people that are trying to kill you. So it's no shock or surprise that the church would scatter if there are open uh, executions and what follows is a persecution, 
that involves house-to-house scavenging, finding who's who, trying them, executing them as well. So this is the first time in the book of Acts that we see the word persecution. Not the first time in the Bible, but the first time in the book of Acts. Uh, The story had been leading up to it. We've tracked and charted this for weeks now. Chapter 4, there was a warning, don't preach in the name of Jesus. Chapter 5, there was a beating because they went ahead and preached in the name of Jesus. In chapter 7, there was Stephen's martyrdom. We just finished that. He was killed because he preached in the name of Jesus. And then now in chapter 8, there's the persecution where they're going to go get the rest of the folks for preaching in the name of Jesus. So the immediate result is scattering. And look where they're scattering toward, Judea and Samaria. Now, does that fit the pattern that we were told at the beginning of the book of Acts? Uh, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. There's one more, the uttermost parts of the world. That includes us, a part of the uttermost. If there had been no persecution, would the church have got the message to Fuquay Varina? Would it have taken longer? What we're going to find out is this persecution is actually, actually instrumental in the spread of the gospel. But we'll come back to that. The chapter break uh, from chapter 7 to 8 is kind of cumbersome, and we've made mention about whether verse 1 belonged in um, chapter 7. But there's information there that helps uh, you know, separate some of these ideas and help us make sense of others. Uh, if you look backward just a bit to verse 58, chapter 7, And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, that was Stephen, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. The reason I, I bring that up and make you go back, Saul is the one that spearheads the persecution. Saul is the one we're going to hear about for the rest of the book, but we're only going to hear about him by the name Saul briefly. By the time we get to chapter 9, his Damascus Road conversion, everything changes. And we'll have enough on our plate to study when we get there. I thought it might be helpful to at least take the opportunity for some background information in this man who was the church's greatest in so many categories, started off as their worst enemy. Uh, I, I would think that as people are reading this, as Luke wrote it to begin with, they all know this type of thing. But we have to be good students and make sure we've got it in our head to be able to read through it as it was intended. This is the first mention in the Bible of Saul of Tarsus. And uh, at this point, he's a really bad guy. Like, really bad. Um, let me see if we can't picture this. Think of it this way for uh, contrast and comparison. Don't you love it when the teacher goes into that mode? Um, We like to spend a lot of time talking about the greatest in certain categories, be it this field or this expertise, but it's probably sports where folks do this the most, right? Uh, I didn't know it until not long ago that they have a special acronym for those. They call them GOATs, greatest of all time, right? And we all know if we talk about football, whose name comes up, 
But it's contested, isn't it? There's people that think, no, 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 he can't be the goat. There's other people that can if you consider this and that and the other. But we all somehow get fixated on this idea of people that are really good at something and consistently good at it. We call it greatness, be it baseball or hockey or, uh, I don't know, accounting or administration. No, we don't. We don't talk about that, do we? We say, here they come again, and we talk about someone else. Why is it we do that, though? And why do we want to put them on a pedestal and act as if they're way different, totally different than we are, and we'd never be able to attain to certain things like that? Well, because I guess if it's sports we're referring to, there is a level of athleticism that uh, God didn't put in what it requires to get that out of most of us. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Where, where that might be the best conversation for a, a, a parent to have with a child. Son, God didn't put in what you need, so we're not going to be able to pull it out. Um, but in other ways, as far as our spiritual selves go, if anyone's going to ask the question, who is the greatest theologian that ever lived? It's clear. No one's going to argue. It's the Apostle Paul. If you ask who's the best, greatest missionary of all times, it's the Apostle Paul. Uh, best evangelist, Apostle Paul. Uh, many would argue the best pastor, even though we have just a few of the pastoral epistles. It is incredible what the Lord did for the church through the man named Saul of Tarsus. And what God put in in order to get what he got out. But I think it'll surprise, maybe shock us as to what's necessary for God to do through a man. And you've heard me use that phrase that I think is one of the most scary things I've, I've ever heard another human say, that God doesn't use a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. But at this point, this fellow is the one in charge of approving this execution. Um, his history is remarkable, though we have to get a lot of this from extra-biblical sources. Though with a man whose reputation, like Saul of Tarsus on his own right, and then Paul the Apostle, we can take these points as, as accurate. His father was a Roman citizen, which meant he had to have done something significant to be a Roman citizen. Do you remember Ben-Hur? Uh, I remember seeing that as a child and just totally blown away at, 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 at what happened when the galley ship was attacked. Do you remember the guy with the nub, you know, walking around? Nobody? You don't remember the, the, the nub, the, the broken arm? Somebody in the balcony does. I've never seen anything like that. You know, there's all these bad movies you protect kids from watching. Well, Ben-Hur had a broken leg with a nub, bone sticking out. During that whole battle scene, Judah Ben-Hur was able to save the life of the Roman consul, right? That Roman consul was able to appeal for his freedom, because he was a criminal. He was headed for the arena, basically. And then he made him his son through adoption. So Judah Ben-Hur was free, and he's a Roman. Now, it takes some doing to get that position. Whatever it was that Saul's father did, 
may not be as equally fascinating, but it was significant. As such, Paul is born with Roman citizenship, which will come in handy later down the road when we read about it. Um, Tarsus, where he grew up, was a trade hub uh, at a strategic position between Europe and Asia and Africa to the south, kind of a triangular crossroads of all the trade that went through the world just about. Very luxurious city, wealthy city, had the largest university in the world at the time before Alexandra and Athens would take that trophy. But before Saul went to seminary, how many, what, what age do you think that uh, Saul went to seminary? Thirteen. Now, before he was 13, he learned to trade. He had that in his belt before he ever went to seminary. That was tent making. Again, a, a, a very uh, luxurious profession. Um, when he went to seminary, that would be moving to Jerusalem. Gamaliel, we were introduced to him in chapter 5, leading theologian in the world at the time, was his teacher. And after seven years' worth of time under Gamaliel, he earns the equivalent of two PhDs in seven years. Now, I took my three-year MDiv and crammed that into five years. I see you. Now you're listening. That took some effort. But this guy, by the time he's 21, the equivalent of two PhDs. And it's roughly around this amount of time where we see him as the fellow overseeing the execution of the first martyr. Now, you've got to understand that a man who knows the Mosaic law that well knows that that trial wasn't kosher. But he's got to be convinced that it was the right thing to do. And he's got to be further convinced that it's the right thing to do to go round up anyone else like them and do the same thing to them. The word ravaging here is, is, a, is a crazy word. Uh, it's the only time we see it in the New Testament. It's used elsewhere to describe a wild boar destroying a vineyard. Talk to people in Florida where those boar run around and tear their gardens up. It's destruction with those big tusks on the side of their face. That's the description of what he was doing. Now, he's doing this, and the people are scattering. If we jump back to the end of verse 1, the, the apostles remain. They weren't out of harm's way, and the majority of them, all but John, would die for their faith. That wouldn't happen until Acts 12, when James is killed. And they probably stay around till about then. But by the time you get to verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. Under Jewish law, you were allowed to bury an executed man, but not to publicly mourn over them. So this is about all that they could do, and it probably amounted to some type of a, a public protest by burying this executed man. Which, uh, it's encouraging to hear that. I mean, we're always grateful for when a few good men do the right thing when everybody else is saying don't. Uh, it kind of brings to mind um, there's a group over in Israel, uh, Z-A-K-A, Zaka, I think is, is the name. It's volunteer, uh, first responder type 
uh, folks that are Orthodox Jews, you know, can't have anything to do with dead bodies. They actually are the first on the scene for the suicide bombers. And the last thing they do is clean up the body of the suicide bombers and bury it properly because they have a correct understanding of the image of God and bury them. Uh, so even to this day, they're, they're, there are devout men, Hebrews, who clean up what no one else wants to. By the time we get to verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off. That word is described by uh, pulling a fishing net, dragging them away. Um, think of Sherman through the south purposefully just burning everything in sight. He's ripping apart the church as, as to destroy it. Isn't the kind of thing that you can just keep your head down and your mouth shut and you'll be all right? This is more like Nazi Germany, door to door. We talked about the prison situation here because it doesn't say that he's killing them. We learn that elsewhere. Uh, but the imprisoning was actually used as a way to figure out who else is involved because they wouldn't feed them. Whoever brings them food, then you, you check them out next. So it, it's, it's part of their canvassing. All right. I think we can safely say this is a bad story. So what was that we were talking about in verse 8? Joy in the midst of persecution. All right, we need to find the twist. We need to find out what's missing. Here's where we'll start making points. There'll be three of them. You can write these down. I think they'll be clear enough to see. And hopefully there'll be something to take home. Number one, God's people kept speaking. That's how we get to much joy. It's at least the first step. Verse 4, Now when those who were scattered went about preaching the word... Those who were scattered went preaching the word. Now, let me help you with this because I know what you're thinking with the word preaching. You'd say, well, that's what you're doing or trying to do right now, right? Well, that's our definition for it. That's not at all a representation from the Greek as to what's being said here. It's just the basic generic version of bearing witness to give testimony. Now, where are the apostles when this is going on? They're still in Jerusalem. These people have scattered away from Jerusalem. The, the professionals aren't with them. These are everyday, ordinary, saved by grace, Christians, converts, some Jews, some not Jews. But what they're doing here is speaking. They're, they're bearing witness. They're witnessing to other people. Ordinary people felt it was their job to evangelize others. Not a reference to apostles and not the picture of a guy studying all week for an hour in a pulpit somewhere. Y'all find this amazing? That somebody just got killed for this. They grab their things and they go somewhere else. How many other things are on your list of things to do when you grab all your stuff and head to a place where you don't live? until you get there. You need a job. You need to find something to eat. You need some shelter. But you're going to tell other people about Jesus such that there's all kinds of folks that now know the gospel. I don't know how long this took. It didn't happen in over a weekend. 
but it is quite a testimony. Where the early church went, the gospel followed it. You could start asking difficult questions at this point. What if Wake Chapel got scattered? Now, I don't know what it would take to scatter Wake Chapel. Uh, COVID drove us to our homes, didn't it? Um, But we tuned in. We watched it together. We got through it. Uh, We'll have other problems. I don't think that was one of them. We might have difficulty um, saying no to the convenience at home when we could be here. (laughs) I'll leave that between you and the Holy Spirit. But what if this, the trajectory of the culture and its thoughts about not only this book, but the people that believe it, and what is not cool to say anymore, and what you shouldn't say anymore. Um, Even in the South, where we felt like it was all home games, there aren't any home games anymore. They're all away games. The the crowd is cheering for the other team, not for us. So if that gets worse and worse and worse to where it's difficult, where it costs us, should we be scattered? Are there other people years from now that will gather in a place, even in hiding, because of our testimony, without a preacher, without apostles, and without a Bible for crying out loud? They didn't have that. They had their Old Testaments. This is significant. To be intellectually honest with the passage we've got right here, we must know that what we're reading, we wouldn't be reading if these people didn't do what they did and kept telling people about Jesus, even though you could get killed for doing it. So, yeah, there's a disrupting paragraph to make us think, but that's exactly what it's here for. That was the first point. God's people kept speaking second point, God provided more people to listen. This is my favorite point. The first one's the most amazing, but I'm most happy for the second one because that lets us know that as scary as witnessing is, whether or not you can be killed for it or not, God is working at it as well. You're not just sent out on your own uh, to use your own skill set to see if you can persuade people uh, against their their, uh, thinking heretofore to change their minds and become Christians. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. There's a bunch of people there. This is the scariest thing there ever is when you put on events, especially outreach events. Will anybody show up? People are showing up here. Um, You know, there's no way to get around the witnessing component to this message. And I know it's the church's favorite topic to ever hear in church. Right behind prayer and right behind giving. Right? You can laugh at that. I think it probably amounts to the greatest disparity in in our thinking. Where, on the one hand, we know the importance of the gospel. Or we wouldn't be here. But at the same time, we're pitiful in our witnessing as to the importance of the gospel. I'd I'd love to be able to know why. I'm still figuring that out for myself. But one of the things that helps the most with it is to know we're not in this alone. I think 
the thing that brings the most fear is because we don't think it'll work. Whoever I'm going to talk to doesn't want to hear it. Or they're going to think less of me. Or I'll burn a bridge. Or I won't have that relationship anymore. Or it'll cost me at work. Or whatever. And I don't think that we think that God isn't helping us. But what if I read it this way? It couldn't be that we just don't believe that God would ever be involved in actually bringing to us or bringing us to someone who will actually listen because he's ordained the whole thing, is it? We would never say we believe that. But we live like we've forgotten it. Um, sometimes the Lord puts us in a situation that they can just leave us dumbfounded as to how he actually works these things out. One, one time, and this was back at the first church I served in. This would be uh, Pleasant Grove in Halifax, Virginia, not the one close by here. And we had a church event planned that evening, I remember. And I had to run an errand in South Boston. And I drove by the Ford dealership, and lo and behold, there's a brand new Mustang sitting right there on the lot. Next generation, we've seen it on TV and on the internet. There's one in the flesh. So I had to stop, look at it. And I knew what I was going to say when the salesman came out. I can't afford it, but I used to work at a Ford lot. I cleaned up a brand new, shiny, previous generation. This is a new one. I just had to see it. I'll be on my way. And sure as the world, the guy comes out and he starts asking questions. I confess, I couldn't afford this if my ship came in. Um, I said, I, 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 I work at a church. <laughs> and uh, this is early in our marriage. We live in a parsonage, and uh, we both work. And things would, would improve drastically in time. But the guy says, well, I got a question for you then. He grew up in a church. He got away from it. And he'd been agonizing over his eternal security. Before I leave, I pray with the man. He, he asked the Lord to save him again if it didn't work the first time. I said, you can't do it too many times, but it only works once. But just to be safe, let, let, let's go through the basics. And I drove off stupefied. I just wanted to look at a Mustang. And, and, and I'm already in my head thinking about how not to talk to this guy. And I had nothing to do with that. The Lord used that in spite of my fact I'd already determined and never dawned on me he might be on his way uh, to eternity without the Lord. So God is going to have to be a major part of this if it's ever going to get done because we're no good at it. Uh, he'll have to help us in that regard. So if we'll keep speaking and we know God will keep bringing people to hear us, then sometimes we worry about, okay, once we've said our thing and they've heard what we've said, what do we do then? Do we need to be uh, working on a way to maybe create the right moment to help tilt the persuasion in our favor there's all kinds of debates as to how to conclude a service high pressure no pressure altar call no altar call lots of music 
or just little music? If they don't come, do you play the music again? How long do you keep playing the music until they come? Do you miss lunch playing the music until somebody comes? I'm kind of joking at that last point, but you get the idea. What do you do? Well, look at the third point. This is verse 6. God gave them, this is the unbelievers at that point, signs that were hard to ignore. Verse 6, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him, okay, so they heard the word, and saw the signs that he did. Okay, what did he do? For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. They had exorcisms. Now, before you think that's weird, well, it is because we've never seen one, except on some dumb movie you shouldn't have watched anyway. Um, in the Old Testament, we don't see any of that. See, all kinds of things done by the prophets, but not exorcism. Then you've got Jesus doing this and people saying, what in the world is he's casting out devils in the name of the devil? And he's, that's absurd. But when you see God casting out devils by the finger of God, then surely the kingdom is, is upon you, right? As if to say to those who would know what he was saying, you haven't seen this yet. And then he allows the apostles to do this for a time, as if to point back to an exceptional clause here. This is different. This lends credibility to a story that we're trying to figure out if it's true, if Jesus really was who he said he was. So um, they didn't have a Bible to work with. Um, it's difficult to determine who's fake and who's real. We get a grade A example of a fake next week. These signs would vindicate the authenticity of their witness. Question is, okay, we're learning about what was. We live right here where things are, wasness to isness. Does God still at times give a sign to someone who's trying to figure out whether or not this is legitimate? Is it in the amount of, of exorcisms or healings or mysterious money show up in a bank account? I don't think so. But to say that God doesn't do that anymore is to say something that the Bible doesn't say. I think he does. Can God convince someone whose life is a mess by someone whose life is put together? Not put together, Facebook put together, put together in a real way. Where, where, where they can actually have something called joy in the middle of something they'd call persecution and, and get through it. And it's not fake. Could God speak to someone through something as simple as a loving family that actually works, a, a, a marriage where faithfulness is there? Not perfect. There's no such thing. But two people who look together at one book and say, this is where we'll agree. And when this book says we're wrong, we'll admit it. We'll work on it. And it'll be excruciating, but this is what we'll do. We'll allow this to be our mediator. What about uh, stewardship of a cancer diagnosis? That would be something I'd 
take notice of? What about a happy home as far as kids go? What about a home where people don't go to the door and then immediately split up into the furthest corners of that building in their rooms with the door shut and their electronic devices where they can listen to the rest of the world tell them, I'll leave all that out. What if they actually like being with each other? Kids actually like being with their daddies. Um, you might say, they're weird. They're probably homeschooled too. <laughs> Maybe they are. But I think as Christians, we ought to be able to love the family God gave us. Amen. And if you're the ones in the neighborhood that seem as if it might be fun to live at that residence, are just not an absolute storm of drama, maybe that might be a sign for the neighbor. I don't know what they believe, and I don't know their Bible. All I know is they're different, and I like what's different. And maybe it's the Bible that gave them the different, and they're not just magic or special or the greatest family ever. It might be worth looking into. So we shouldn't underestimate the power of a counterculture. The world carries on like they're happy, but we know they're not. And they would say they're not. Could they be? Yeah. It won't be what we give them. It will be what the Lord gives them. It's an ability to live for something other than this world is what it's all about. So here's your conclusion. We've, we've looked at three ways to get from persecution to joy people kept speaking. God's people kept speaking. God kept bringing people to listen. And God gave the listeners signs that were hard to ignore. So it's obvious God used problems to build the church here. And it's obvious that God at that point took people from verse 1 to verse 8. Question is, is he still in the business of taking us from verse 1 to verse 8? Persecution to joy. I think he is. I'm convinced he is. He'll always be. So what we take home is that we keep speaking. In the second category, we'll have to trust the Lord that he'll bring people to listen. We don't need to offer gimmicks. We just trust him. If we're speaking his word, people will come to listen. Cross the street or you go across the street to them. But either way, that's the way it works. And then finally, the sign, we'll have to leave that up to God. He's in the business of signs, miracles. That's not us. But I believe that he can produce a sign through something as simple as living an obedient life. I think that's how it'll work. To just be obedient and be real. Here's probably the... the the most difficult question out of the whole time together this morning and I'll only mention it because it hurts my feelings too how long has it been since you prayed that God would send you someone to share him with that's convicting but would anyone like to raise their hand and offer up a request that God is more likely to answer I think he'll answer that one I think if we pray it, he'll answer it. But we're going to have to pray it with some guts and then to follow through with it and to pray it regularly until it's prayed so much that it's just something that's part of us. And 
we'd be a fool not to run headlong into a situation that might be the means of his answering the request. One thing I want to add, and this will be to go back to where we started. Sometimes that, that helps. Just as one more thing to stick in your brain before we leave and go do whatever we're going to leave and go do. Back to Paul the Apostle. At this point in the text, he's Saul of Tarsus. We talked about the greatest, greatest missionary, greatest evangelist, uh, greatest theologian, greatest pastor. But at this point in the story, he's the church's greatest enemy. But if you look through your New Testament, he's not going to say that he's the greatest ever. He's going to talk about a whole list of things that aren't worth anything. I won't use his term. Kids go home, find out the term Paul used from the Greek, and then ask your pastor about it. Just kidding. Um, there's one time that he uses the term for himself. And this is it, 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the greatest. If there's something to learn from this man, I think it's right there. It wasn't his credentials. It was his poverty that made him great. And because he was such a sinner, a great sinner, God's grace was even greater, so great that he never lost his drive to tell people about it. Jesus Christ saves sinners. And try this on for a minute. We're always worried that it's going to get hung up somehow in the way that we pitch it. As if the person won't see the usefulness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think the greatest antidote for that is for them to actually see and believe. Whether or not they believe it to be true, they believe you to believe it true that you were the greatest need of that grace. That Jesus gave you what you needed most there isn't anything you need any greater than salvation. If you can be great at being a sinner, and you know what I mean by that, not by sinning, Paul would say, God forbid, but knowing your standing in front of a holy God as having broken his laws. Now this guy, do you think he ever slept without the image of a man about to die? looking him in the face and asking that God not hold that sin to his account. And I think the sign probably for Paul later on is Stephen and those other deacons that had the guts to go wherever it was necessary to tell people about this grace that can save such a sinner. It's a fascinating story of a man who couldn't have been greater at one thing who then becomes the greatest at another. And then if you ask him what he thinks about it, the only greatness he sees is the extent of his sin and the extent of God's grace. That'll help us. I think if we can remember those things, live those things, pray those things, and be those things, God just might choose to use us and for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for another hour together in your house. We thank you for the songs we're able to sing made from Scripture. 
Lord, we're thankful for the theology we study, again from Scripture. Lord, it's all Scripture. We thank you for today brought to us by the Word of God. Would you burn that Word into our brains, into our hearts, such that it oozes out in our actions? And Lord, bring us somebody to tell. Give us the guts to tell them. And Lord, would you be so pleased as to amaze us in wonder at the way you choose to show yourself to others by means of a validating sign. Thank you for giving us a sign. And Lord, we thank you for this time together. Would you give us someone to talk to, even today? That's our request. We ask this in your name. Amen.